Welcome to a very special episode of the ATP podcast with me, Candy Reid. A week on from the final major of the year, the US Open, we bring you a compelling conversation I had with one of the all-time great American tennis coaches. Rick Macy was responsible for the early development of both Venus and Serena Williams, and the role he played in their life was portrayed by an actor in the movie King Richard. As well as the Williams sisters, Macy also coached Jennifer Capriati, Maria Sharapova, Mary Pierce and Andy Roddick at a young age, as well as countless other top pros, and can still be found getting up at the crack of dawn, preparing to teach thousands of aspiring children from all ages at the Rick Macy International Tennis Academy based in Delray Beach, Florida. An inductee of the US PTA Hall of Fame, Rick truly is one of the most inspiring individuals you could care to meet. And I do hope you enjoy this wide ranging conversation. Rick Macy, welcome to the ATP podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. No, I'm glad to be here to be a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Well, before we get to the nuts and bolts of your career and the life lessons you've learned, which I'm sure are many, I'd really like to know about your daily routine. And I believe, I've been told, a little birdie told me that you get up at 3 a.m. and start your day with a half, hour, a half mile jog or a half hour jog. I don't know what this is. And I presume, before you continue, I presume this is true because I sent you an email from London at 8 a.m. and you replied very, very shortly after. And I think that was 3 a.m. your time. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm wired a little different. You know, I've gotten up at like three o'clock for really the past uh, 25 years. You know, I get up and have a lot of structure and routine. And once I get dressed, I have an office in my house. I return all emails, probably the one you got. And then I go jog a half mile uh, in the neighborhood. And then I come back, um, hang out with my cat for a few minutes. And then I go to Rick Macy Tennis Center. It's uh, at a park here in Boca Raton. Uh, at 67, I'm a park ranger. I open up the park every morning, seven days a week, and it's just bang. I've kind of been like that, you know, very structured, very much in a routine, uh, very seldom mix it up. But you're right, every day, three o'clock, and what's crazy, without an alarm. So you can imagine we're doing this from uh, California today. So I had to come out here for a meeting. I was up at two o'clock today, ready to go. I didn't have anything to do. So uh, uh, here I am, though. Do you find your staff that work for you as sort of on a similar structure, knowing that the boss is, you know, a very structured person? Absolutely not. Okay. You know, I think the subliminal things or the organic things that the staff sees or all the players I've influenced over my life, they pick up on that. And later on in life, you know, they come back and they say those things about the work ethic, the discipline, the focus, the structure. Uh, I learned long ago to not try to make everybody do what, what I want. You know, they work with me, not for me. And that's very different because you would go crazy because I'm just a little different. You know, I've never sat down on a tennis court in 25 years. I still pick up the balls, you know, uh, and I teach 50 hours a week, seven days. So I do things a little different. Uh, but that genuineness and obviously knowing what you're doing and how to extract greatness from others, you know, I, I still love what I do and I still have the passion. But to make other people follow that blueprint, you got to be careful with that. Do you find with all the very good juniors you've coached that they become more structured as they become more successful? Absolutely. You know, because a lot of the times, you know, I'm having these kids 
you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, but you can have a bigger influence candy in their life than their parents. You know, they're going to look at their parents through a different set of eyes. And, you know, I'm kind I'm kind of like a woodpecker. If I don't get it through the front door, I come through the side door or then the window or the chimney. You know, I just keep pecking until I feel good about the situation and the life lessons that you know, the kids pick up on uh, are just catastrophic. You know, even Venus and Serena, uh, you know, you know, the things that they told me at the after party when I went to the red carpet, uh, when we went back down memory lane but all the players that I've coached, but I don't try to do that. You know, I'm more concerned biomechanically about the forehead or the backhead or the serve or strategic, but it's all the other things that just stick with the kids and help them become, you know, a better doctor or lawyer or treat their kids better. You know, I help kids get better grades or get off drugs or whatever, treat people better. These are all things that uh, to me, I don't just change strokes, I change lives. And that's the best feeling in the world. I love that quote. I actually um, owned a tennis academy in, in Atlanta for seven years. And one of my aspiring juniors came to see you for an hour's lesson. And uh, actually, I'm a big fan of yours. I coach many of the things that you coach, like the pat the dog and the forehand stroke and all the strategies and techniques, which I really enjoy. Um, and I was interested to ask about her and the other children that you get, because you obviously get a lot of young kids that have, uh, you know, huge aspirations or perhaps even more importantly, their parents do. How do you cope with the parents and in particular the fathers? First off, great question. But let me back the truck up a little bit. I teach anybody. You know, I'll teach a three year old. I'll teach an adult. I taught an 85 year old guy the other day. So I teach really anybody besides a lot of top players on the tour. You know, I work with a lot of girls that we represent uh, or that some of the best juniors. But yeah, I get a lot of young kids. Their parents have played tennis or they played other sports, NBA, NHL, won a gold medal. So a lot of these people have been there, done that, uh, especially the Eastern European. And it's a little trickier with daddy's little girl. The guys, it's a little different. Never had this problem with Roddick. You know, Roddick was the best. You know, his parents said, do your own thing, you know, carry your own water. You know, where the girls, it's trickier. But this is what I do, Candy. I not only teach the kids, I teach the parents. And that's the art of coaching. You know, think about it. They they eventually start telling me what to do. I'm How crazy is that, you know? And I tell people I should be in the Hall of Fame just putting up with Richard Williams for four years. But no, he was my best friend. And being a Serena were like my own daughters, but no, it's, it's tricky. And you got to have a certain personality to deal with the cast of characters. If you look at the smorgasbord of people, Jim Pierce, Stefano Capriotti, Richard Williams, you know, and they've all had, you know, obviously great players, you know, but getting there and keeping your hands around that, that's the toughest thing. So I think everybody has to understand. Sometimes you check your ego at the door and you win by sometimes keeping your mouth shut. You win by not overreacting. Because if you're wired a certain way, they're going down the street, especially if they lose a match or two. So it, it's tricky. But I'm fortunate enough now where I've had, you know, so much success and I can use other players and other examples. They might listen a little bit more to me. But for all the coaches out there listening, they do the same to me as they do to them. I'm telling you. They, they, they start telling me how to hit the ATP forehand. It's crazy. And Brian Gordon, my partner, who has his degree in sports science and biomechanics, 
we kind of coined this thing, you know, 15 years ago, what was going on more with the men on how to hit the forehand. And so they tell me what to do, but I just agree with them. And then I kind of figured out how to do it. So that, but that's the art of coaching. And you have more authority, of course, than most, most of us coaches. That certainly helps. Um, you mentioned briefly the after a party chat you had with Venus and Serena after the wonderful King Richard got released. Can you give us a little insight into sort of your relationship with them now? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's amazing. You got to remember when they were nine to 15, they're looking at the game of life through a different lens through Richard's eyes or Orsine's eyes or Rick Macy's eyes. And they were little kids. So when we really reunited at the after party, it was, it was incredible Be simply because we went back down memory lane. I literally had Serena on the ground crying the stories. Cause let me tell you, she was a handful. She was a little prankster. I mean, you know, even though now she's going to go down as the greatest female tennis player ever to hold a racket, you got to understand. And some of these stories and I've done so many podcasts, obviously, since the movie. I've told them people are just blown away. And especially Serena, because she's a mother now and she looks at it differently. And it was just it was amazing with just her and Venus and um, but just the memories. And they both said, Rick, we were literally brainwashed to become number one. Now, that maybe can work if you have the speed, the quickness, the size and the right coaching, but I never talked to either of them. And we talked about this, even when they were 10 and 11 and Serena wasn't really that good. Candy, I had probably 10,000 parents see that video and say, my kid is better than that. But they didn't see what was under the hood and where this could go like coaches can kind of project. And I always would say, Steffi would get that. Martina would get that. Capriati, that's not going to work against her. I wasn't talking about 12-year-olds. It was always about the future. And that's kind of how I build a player. I don't really, I'm not into the moment, even though a lot of them have success now. But no, relationships, unbelievable. Uh, you know, as they got older, they see it differently. And then coming out in a movie, they're looking at it like it's surreal. And then I went up to visit Richard, okay, um, he's like 80 years old now in West Palm Beach. And I got out of the car, me and my daughter, I'm coming up the driveway and he yells, Rick, thank you so much for getting me out of the ghetto. Okay. He's, this is, this is our relationship. You know, we were like, even though he was brutal at times, you know, but I could handle that. You got to understand it's very, very different. We we're on a mission as me and him against the world. So no, it's, it's totally amazing. Uh, Love both the girls and uh, who knows, maybe I'll be teaching Serena's little daughter someday if she plays tennis. Well, I wouldn't get bet against it, that's for sure. Um, talking about talent, you obviously have an eye for that because you've worked with amazing players. You've mentioned Serena and Venus Williams, Maria Sharapova, Jennifer Capriati, Sophia Kennan, a lot more women than men. You have had Andy Roddick, of course. What did you see in Andy when he was young and you started working with him? Yeah, well, I think with the with the girls, it's the physicalities, not as much, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, with the guys, you know, before I get into Andy, you know, I did have Tommy Ho. He was my first. He won, you know, 15 gold balls or national championships by age 15. In 1988, he was the youngest ever at age 15 to win Kalamazoo. And that record still stands today. What's really crazy I had Jennifer at the same time. So I had the daily double. I had both kids win the 18s. One was 12 
Jennifer, which was insane, and Tommy 15, and both those records still stand today. But I did work a lot with Christian Rude, okay, Cream uh, Alami, Vince Spadia. There's been other guys. Obviously, they didn't become like top 10 in the world. But Roddick, his thirst, and I tell this to everybody, for competition was like no other. The guy was so brutally competitive. First to get a drink, there was a snack on the table. He'd fight you to get it. When he lost, he would keep bugging me. Can I play him tomorrow? I said, you got to earn it. He'd come back later. Can I play him tomorrow? So the wiring to compete, um, which is the wild card really to handling pressure. Because when you're all about the competition, you don't choke as much. You don't get as nervous. His forehand, he was one of the first, the Mohicans with the ATP forehand. He kind of taught me about the racket going to the outside, the elbow elevated, the pull, the flip. Looked a little weird. Then when I saw it worked, I, I kind of figured it out. And then a serve put it together biomechanically, became one of the best in the history of tennis. But his competitive thirst, and he was going to be about 6'2 or whatever. Would I have thought he was going to win the U.S. Open at 19 or 20? I mean, when I had him, he was one in the country in the 12s. But then when he grew at 14, 15, his serve just went to a whole nother level. Um, but it was more the internal. And people always looked at Andy like, is he the next Sampras, Agassi, Chang? You know, he was never going to be that, in my opinion. But I think he overachieved. And I, I tell him this. He actually just sent me a text yesterday, asked me about Coco Goff's forehand. He wanted me to give him some insight. He's just a great guy with competition. Everything changed around him. I think he overachieved. Very few bad losses. And people really didn't appreciate him as much until we've never had any other American Grand Slam champion. He was just a great competitor. Everybody's competitive. It was a different level. I mean, he took out Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. He beat all those guys now and then. And if it was a boxing match, they would probably win 18 to 20 of the tail of the tape. But he he was just as competitive, had the big serve and the uh, you know, the forehand. So one of my all-time favorites, he was a mosquito. He just would not let you alone. And I love that in a player. And you've got to say that uh, you mentioned Coco Goff. She's got to be similar on a women's side. Very, very competitive um, from everything that her dad, Corey, says. I think uh, I've heard him speaking quite a lot in seminars. And he said she doesn't really like to hit balls. She likes to play points, play matches. And, and is that what makes a champion? That's one of the pieces of the puzzle. And I agree with Corey. It's how she's wired. You know, and this is what I saw, Candy and Venus Serena. When I went out to Compton in 91, we got on the court. Remember, I had Jennifer Capriotti. So my blueprint for greatness was probably stronger than anybody in the world. Great fundamentals by the late, great Jimmy Everett, low center of gravity, racket back in the parking lot. So Jennifer was poetry in motion. Now I go to Compton and I'm on the court with Venus and Serena at nine and 10. There's arms, legs, hair, beads flying off their head. I'm going, what in God's name am I doing in Compton, California? It's like, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I saw many kids at that level. Then when I said, let's play competitive points. And it was more about Venus, as you saw in the movie, because she was more mature. The whole landscape changed. They started popping the popcorn, extra butter. Their feet were out of control. Uh, but And their preparation got better. But there was like a rage. There was, there was something inside these two little kids. Candy, they, they ran so hard to get to the ball, their nose was almost on the ground. 
And even balls that were like 15 feet away that no one would have got to, they still ran for it. And I'm going, whoa. It was when we played competitive sport uh, points and said game on. And so right then and there, and this was 1991, I'm thinking in my mind, and Serena had all the time in the world. Okay. And she kind of knew where I was going to hit it before it was hit, but she was all over the map. So no one looked at it and could see anything. And I just thought they could not only be number one in the world. I start thinking they could transcend the sport. This was 1991. If you were big and strong, you weren't really nimble. So I start thinking that. And now I told Richard, I go, Richard, come here. And this is in the movie. I go, let me tell you something. You got the next female Michael Jordan on your hand. And he puts his arm around me. He goes, no, brother, man. I got the next two. That's that's all true. But Candy, I didn't see it at first. Okay. And it's a great lesson for any parent, coach, or Rick Macy. You don't judge the book by the cover. The cover could be amazing. The book bad. The cover bad. The book amazing. It's what I saw under the hood. That really was the wild card. And then you throw in all the other attributes, especially with Serena. That's why she's going to be the greatest of all time. So 1991 was when you met the Williams sisters, but you started your academy in 1985. That's when Tommy Ho and Jennifer Capriati were your students. How did it come to pass that those two players in particular were with you? I mean, Tommy Ho, we don't know so much about. We know he was a fabulous junior, but Jennifer Capriati, I mean, she was a fabulous all-round player at all ages. So you had two of unbelievable American players. How did that happen? Yeah, well, it was I, I was director of tennis at Greenleaf Golf and Tennis Resort. And in 1984, or 80, 1984, uh, a doctor from Winter Haven, Florida, named Wrong Dad Ho, he took a group adult clinic with me because Greenleaf was like 12 miles from Winter Haven. And he liked kind of how I taught. And he goes, I have three sons. I want to bring them over. We give them lessons. So they brought them over. And, uh, the two older ones had some ability, but the younger one, Tommy, who was nine years old, he held the racket with a severe Western grip. And you remember in the late eighties, that was pretty bizarre, but he never missed. And he got angles from outer space. I'm going, this is interesting. And he could focus. And so I started teaching him fast forward that story. Two years later, won every national in the twelves, singles and doubles, a record still stands today. Mentally he had it was taught good strokes, wasn't the greatest athlete. So I kind of thought he might make it pretty big in doubles on the ATP tour, singles, there's going to be some limitations. But in junior tennis, uh, you know, he just dominated. And when people saw him serve, he was a lefty. He could kick the ball at 12 years old. These guys, after their split step, it would bounce the other way and they wouldn't even swing at it. That's how abusive Tommy was. He'd win nationals and lose seven games. It was annihilation. And so I was with Alessa and Jennifer Capriotti was going to be the next Chrissy. She was with Alessa. Stefano saw Tommy serve. He said, I want my daughter learning how to serve like that because Chrissy kind of just put it in and then was just ice. So Jennifer started coming from Lauder Hill to Greenleaf. And I'd work with her like six hours every weekend and then uh, work with her three and a half years. She became the youngest ever to win the 18s, took her out to San Francisco when she won uh, the 18 hard courts, but really took her game uh, on the baseline, take it early, cut the court. I didn't have her play like Chris. I said, you're the next Jennifer Capriotti. Women's tennis is changing. There's this girl 
named Celis over at IMG that plays very different. I, so it was always his vision about, and, and Stefano pushed back. You know, he kind of wanted the, the Chrissy thing. I said, you're always going to have that comparison, but the game is changing. The technology is changing. So yeah, I had those two right away, but they had a lot to work with and I just made it even better. And I suppose it's for any aspiring tennis player, you've got to have everything in place, don't you? You have to have the athleticism. You have to have the finances from somewhere. The one parent generally who's the pusher and then finding someone like you who has the vision to put it all together. And the chances of that are very, very slim, aren't they? Very slim. You know, I've seen kids that came to me, our our junior players, even I work with a lot of girls now, say 100 to 500 in the world. And they were all top 10 in the world. So when you're top 10 in the world, you're, you think you're on your way, but you don't quite make it for whatever the reasons. A lot of it's technical. You know, there's a, there's a little hole. The hole gets smaller as you get older, but it's still a hole, especially when you feel pressure. It always comes out under pressure. So the biomechanic or the technical has to be addressed at a young age until that muscle memory is baked in extra crispy. You could have a problem. There's a little bit of a speed bump on Coco's forehand and serve. Um, she's going to win grand slams, but to dominate, you know, there, that has to be addressed. So yeah, all, everything has to be in place and think about it. If I don't fund the Williams project, if I don't take a chance and come out millions of dollars, this might not have happened. You might not be talking to me right now. Who knows where all this goes? And I took a chance. I could have been wrong. I tell people I've been wrong a lot. That's why I'm right more than most. So yeah, you know, you, all these things have to come in place, you know, right time, right person, right belief. They have to have the genetics. Listen, if someone's a turtle, I can make them a faster turtle, but it's still a turtle. You know, I can't make a, a donkey a thoroughbred. You know, if I can hit the ground running like Venus and Serena, Richard and Orsine, in my opinion, hit the genetic jackpot. Even though Venus and Serena have very different body types, if you go back to Serena, Big, strong, fast, quick, mobile. We've all seen her do the splits at the U.S. Open. I mean, and take the ball early, play through your opponent, pretty clean strokes. And listen, it wasn't from drinking the water that she got that serve. That was put together biomechanically, just like Roddy. Now, but you got to put it on someone that maybe has a few things to work with. Like Roddick's shoulder rotation was much further than his brother. Serena's motion was a little more natural than VW's. So it's all these things. And you just keep going, uh, especially if you're doing it all for free. You're really on a mission to cover uh, every stone. And that's just how I am. And as they say, the rest is history. It's interesting about Serena and Andy. They both had older siblings, didn't they? Because Andy's brother, John Roddick, was a very, very good player. Ended up going to the University of Georgia I knew a good friend of his, and I know he had a very bad back problems, but he was an excellent player. And does that help, do you think, um, uh, sort of motivate the younger sibling? Yeah, it cuts both ways, but I think it helps. You know, I really think it helps. Uh, Andy had two older brothers. His oldest, Lawrence, was a, a very good collegiate diver. So Andy always got picked on. It made him rougher and tougher or whatever. Um, and I think with Serena, obviously, it helped. But it was a, they, they're like two peas in a pot. I tell people they were skipping and holding hands at age nine. And at 40, they're still skipping and holding hands. It's like it's an amazing, unique, because let's face it, many things could have blown that thing up. Fame, fortune, 
boyfriends, my, you name it. And look, they're like, bang, a family like no other, just like the movie. So it does help to have siblings. It cuts both ways. It could add more pressure. But I think in general, it helps because the parents learn on the way. And the maybe like Christian Root, I had Christian, Norway's finest. I had him from like 18 to 21. He got to like 39, 40 in the world. And he made sure his son was going to have a much better forehand than him, a much better serve than him. You know, so just that alone and the famous quote of all time that I always told him, winners find a way, losers make excuses. And Casper's even said that a few times after the matches. So that life lesson was put into him at birth. And, you know, when you have that mindset, you just keep working hard and you don't blame others. And you were in the crowd, weren't you, with Christian Rude watching Casper, I believe, in the final of Miami when he lost to Carlos Alcaraz. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember him saying the exact quote and quoting from you, the legendary Rick Macy. That must have been quite, quite a thing for you. Yeah, no, listen, you know, that's what I'm saying. You know, I never, I've told there's motivational signs all over Rick Macy Tennis Center. This place is like Disneyland and Candyland. There's no pun intended. There's, there's signs <laughs> everywhere. And even how I talk about certain things, and I said that to Christian, I never even thought about it until, you know, his son won four or five in a row and he brought it up. I don't have time to get tired. Winners find a way. So that's the power of one word, one sentence, you know, one moment in time that maybe can really influence a child's life. Forget sports. You know, it goes much further than that. So, you know, absolutely. Yeah. So. Uh, when they played uh, the Miami Open, uh, we reunited and got to see Christian. Uh, it was really funny because his parents wanted him to go to college. I convinced him to turn pro because his other friend, Freddie Bach, went to UC Ir Irvine. I had both of them full scholarships. I said, listen, I don't think you'll be number one, but you can have to be a top 50 player. And, and he was. And he was Norway's finest, which we both know is not a hotbed for tennis. So, uh, But his dad learned. And I think the greatest gift you can do for anybody is doing something for someone else. What about your tennis career? Were you a decent tennis player? Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, another great question. I was actually very good at golf when I was little. Um, uh, my parents were both county champions. Uh, my father passed away when I was 10. We never could join the country club anymore. And then at 12 years old, I actually lived about a half mile from a park. How crazy is this? I lived a half mile from a park and now I live a half mile from a park and it's named Rick Macy Tennis Center. The courts where I grew up on, Rick Macy Tennis Courts. So I went down there at 12 years old, hit the ball against, picked up a racket, hit the ball against the wall. I love the wall because it, it always came back to me and it never argued. So I just loved the sound candy of the ball hitting the wall and I fell in love with the game. And remember, uh, this was the late 60s you know the court the nets were steel the courts were chipped up there was no windscreens but i just fell in love with the game to fast forward the story uh after basketball practice i'm in the hall of fame for basketball and tennis in my hometown i would hit the ball against the wall because we wouldn't have there's no indoor courts it was like 40 miles away my mom after dinner would drive me back i'd shovel off snow and i'd hit against the wall by 18 this is crazy never had a lesson Number one player in Ohio Valley, guys that beat me 0 and 0 at 13. I probably wouldn't even play with a lot of them at 17, you know. 
And uh, so that's why with the coaching part of this, I see it through a different lens, but I'm very flexible. So I became very good, beat a lot of All-Americans, guys around five, 600, which is good for never having a lesson. And think about it. I never had a lesson in my life and I teach more lessons than anybody in the United States still to this day. So the moral of that story is it's not where you start. It's where you finish. You know what I mean? And if you love what you do and you have passion, that will just keep pushing you forward. But uh, a lot of people have asked me that question because they want to know kind of how I got started and probably the biggest influence because people want to know, well, wasn't there anybody? Is probably Dr. James Lair, a good friend of mine pioneer in sports psychology. We worked a lot in the early 80s at Greenleaf with the corporate structure. I was very into the mental game because I was a brutal competitor. I always wanted the ball at the end of the game. You do things on your own. You know, you just don't think there's any other way. And so you kind of become a little more bulletproof to pressure. So when Jim had this whole organized way about the ideal performance state, I, I just loved the guy and I was so intrigued by that. So he's probably the biggest influence because I help kids today as much mentally or players mentally than most sports psychologists because I know how to say it, when to say it, why to say it, who to say it to, when to say it louder or softer. And there's an art to this with the psychology part of this. So uh, first off, great question. And I love telling that story. Well, it is such a mental game, isn't it? It's not just about the forehands and backhands, which of course have to be top notch and the fundamentals have to be first class, but that mental edge to get you over the line, to play at the top level, to cope with all the pressure. And every day before those players are standing out, going out to the court, the pressure is unbelievable, isn't it? And of course, it's pressure is a privilege we know and you put it on yourself, but you still have to find a way to deal with it. And that's incredibly difficult. Well, well that's, that's the leader in the clubhouse, you know, at the ultimate level or really any level, or even life, having, you got to, I tell people, you got to have, you got to remember to forget, okay, you got to have the ability to forget, okay, in tennis, it's very tricky, and this separates great from good, you know, great is rare air, listen, there's a lot of good athletes, amazing athletes on the WTA and ATP tour, but they're not the leaders in the clubhouse, they didn't become a Nadal, I know it's a package, the forehand, the backhand, the serve. You got to check a lot of boxes. Serena checked every box and created a few more, but you got to check every box. But the, the mental part, how you handle pressure and the ability to forget, you got 20 seconds to flip it in your mind like it had happened 20 years ago. You come back out. And that's why I love Sharapova. Even at 11, she was in a bubble. I called it. Even though she was limited athletically, she had that mental box already there. It was amazing. I didn't see it in Serena. Kennan kind of had that when I saw her. So at the end of the day, that's the wild card. It can be learned. Got to get people to buy in, but that's the wild card. Now, all that being said, that's another reason why you see people do better in doubles. Think about this. And I tell this to the kids all the time. You actually have a therapist on the court with you. You hit it, you double fault, and you go up and you give a high five. And it's like that emotion is gone immediately. Or someone gives you a hug. You got a, a motivator right there on the court, distracting your mind onto the next one. But in singles, it's all on you. So when it's all said and done, that a coach should bring that up, you know, about doubles. Because when people make a mistake in doubles, they respond differently than they do in singles. But it's still tennis. 
Why are you letting the situation control you? You should control the situation. Be your own therapist. Pump yourself up. Because the only thing in life you got control over is your attitude. I always remember Brad Gilbert saying, uh, short-term memory loss. That's what tennis is all about. You've got to have it to be good. That's the key. And finally, um, Roger Federer, when he retired at the Labour Cup, was talking about how the best tennis players are the best athletes. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to that. Franco Herrera, Tommy Paul's fitness trainer, has said, well, you've got to be a great athlete, but you've got to use movement efficiently. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, I think when you say the best athlete, okay, is that from the neck down or from the head down? You know, or do we describe an athlete? So I think you got to, I, I understand the speed, the quickness, the agility, the anticipation. Remember, Serena knew where you were going to hit it before you did. This is what spells greatness at the ultimate level. So I agree with Federer about the athleticism because, listen, if you can't move, you better have a serve like Isner or Erotic if you even want to have a shot. Because if you, if you can move, play offense, defense, you have options. But that is the wild card, but it's a moving efficiently. Listen, I have people who aren't super quick or super fast, but their anticipation skills are unbelievable. They know where you're going to hit it just by where the ball lands, how you're running, the angle of your racket. So a lot of this can be taught, but if it's already baked in, that's a, that's a great thing to work from. And that's kind of one of the things I saw of Serena. So I agree with Federer, but it is a package. Uh, and then you got to deliver the goods under pressure. And that separates great from good. Just finally, when are you going to retire? Never. You know, <laughs> listen, listen, there, I, I don't know what I, I don't know what I would do. You know, I love being on the tennis court. I love helping others. I want to do this as long as I can. I, I still enjoy it. I don't know what I do. Rick Macy, thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Candy. We'll do it again. The one and only Rick Macy. My thanks to Rick for giving us so much of his time. And I do hope you've learned a lot from this conversation. Next week, the attention turns back to the tour proper as the world's best players prepare for the Asian swing, which this year, for the first time since COVID, marks the return of the Rolex Shanghai Masters event. That should be very special indeed. In the meantime, please check out the ATP website for the latest news and video content. The ATP WGA Live Scores app is the place to keep in touch with all the matches if you can't watch them on tennis TV. But for now, from me, Candy Reid, thanks so much for listening and do enjoy the tennis.